like reading other people's private personal mail, you could join the CIA or FBI or become a historian and read love letters of those written long ago. That's what we'll talk about when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. My music track, track, track from a Godom Jack, Jack, Jack plays MP3, three, three, and I download fast, fast, fast. I read the bits, bits, bits on the microchip, chip, chip, and I burn, burn, burn some of my favorite hits, hits, hits. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in technology, but parents can help keep them updated. Go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. pair of thunder thighs. Big ones, too. That mom who's been swimming a lot with her kids must have lost them. Whoa. I heard about this happening once up at Laguna. Small step number 54. Play with your kids. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. In the great scheme of things, a minute isn't all that much, unless you happen to have a stroke. All of a sudden, those minutes count. Minutes that could mean losing your ability to talk, move, or walk. Which is why, if you can get help in time, your stroke can be treated. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face. If you experience this, call 911 immediately. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Looking for answers in real estate? We break it down for you. Each week, the Exeter Group explores how successful investors evaluate and acquire real estate to build their portfolio. From financing tips, tax and accounting strategies, and advice on how to control risk, the Exeter Group entertains and informs while divulging secrets used by the most successful investors. Tune in to the Exeter Group every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Studio A. Hey, how you doing? Educational videos, top quality, right here. You'll never hear anyone selling education on the street. But with free family learning programs, you can get the education you need. Call 1-877-FAMLIT-1 for information on free learning programs. 1-877-FAMLIT-1. Check it out, check it out. We're your GED right here, guaranteed, ma. Come on, check it out. Free family learning programs from the National Center for Family Literacy. Brought to you by the National Center for Family Literacy and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Stephen Berry, author of House of Abraham and All That Makes a Man, two very interesting books on different aspects of the Civil War. Um, as we talk, I'm looking at my email coming in, and I see the current issue of Time Magazine has a book column devoted to Lincoln books, and it mentions, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Um, so my shameless self-promotion continues. <laughs> uh, my quest to overtake you, Stephen, in the uh, sales ranks. <laughs> yep, is well on your way. I'm, I'm getting there, but... Um, You'll get there. Uh, we were talking about uh, Benjamin Hardin Helm, mm-hmm. uh, Lincoln's uh, brother-in-law, who was killed at Chickamauga. You mentioned, uh, when you and I were talking last week, uh, the Hardin in his name, is he related to the Hardin, who was one of Lincoln's uh, Whig colleagues? 
the one who, who uh, was killed in the Mexican War? Yes, I believe he is. I can't. I think it's his mother's. I don't know, brother or uncle or something. So, so he's really part of the Kentucky yes. aristocracy, uh, right? And in fact, one of the reasons I think that the Helms and Lincolns got along so well is that. Um, Benjamin Hart and Helm had come from that same Knob Creek region of Kentucky, knew all the same last names, so even though there's like a 20-year difference between these two men, they're both Kentucky moderates, hailed from the same region, knew the same people, um, and in fact, I think Kentucky, uh, Hart, Helm's law partner had married Sarah Bush Johnston's, I can't remember, but they were married into that clan, so... I think that's one of the reasons that that they're t- they're tight as well. And they're also both lawyers. They were uh, convivial, liked to tell stories. They were both politicians and good stump speakers, and so I think they liked to tell stories of being on the circuit or being on the on the stump. Uh, they just got along fabulously well. And uh, the Helm name is, of course, familiar to Lincoln scholars. Catherine Helm went on to to write about Mary. Right. Well, and she wrote the first sort of biography of Mary. She is the daughter of um, of Emily Helm. Uh, we just talked the story in a week in December of 1863. Emily spends uh, in, in the White House. Well, Catherine's there uh, with her as a young child, and then she'll go on to write this uh, really first early biography of her aunt. So uh, the, the connections are, are many and varied. Uh, That's right. The Helms and Hardens and Todds and Lincolns. The, uh, I mean, the, the book is it's a very entertaining, very interesting, and, and strongly worth a read for Civil War talk radio listeners. But I do also want to talk about your first book, uh, All That Makes a Man, Love and Ambition in the Civil War South. Um, you, From you and I discussing last time uh, when we met, you, you, essentially this begins with collections of love letters. Yeah. Um, you know, your listeners will undoubtedly remember that there was sort of a resurgence of interest in the late 80s, early 90s, about the time I would have been uh, going to graduate school in sword, soldier studies, um, sort of intensely interested in this question of why they fought where they isn't north and south. That question answered mm-hmm. definitively, finally, forever. Uh, they fought over slavery, but where they is sort of the soldiers themselves, what is their motivation, how are they connected to their home front societies, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, James McPherson had just come out with cause and comrades as the answer. So it wasn't primary group cohesion, which is sort of the idea that it existed since Vietnam, that they're fighting for their buddies. And he's saying, well, yeah, they're, they're fighting to save each other's skins in a sort of foobar world, but uh, they're also doing it for liberty, um, for patriotism. Uh, for love of country, uh, for freedom, uh, variously defined. So I, I was, I, of course, uh, think the world of that book and James McPherson is uh, a mighty giant. So I would stand on his shoulders, I figured, um, to ask, okay, how did they anchor uh, liberty, patriot? Those, those words are so amorphous and they, they, they rise uh, so high on so little uh, so how did they anchor them? And so I asked a different question. I said, okay, why do men ever do anything? Not why did they fight this? Why do men ever do anything? And that became essentially the subtitle of the book, Love and Ambition. That's why they ever do anything. Uh, and so then I just looked at love letters particularly because I thought, here's the place that a man tries to project his perfect self-image. So I wasn't really asking, why are they fighting the Civil War? I was asking, why do they think they're doing it? Or why do they wish 
that they're doing it. Uh, and you're going to see that sort of wish fulfillment, that dreamy sense of who I, what kind of man I really want to be and what they project in their love letters to their women back home. So their women are like a mirror, and it's a mirror that reflects back to them their ideal self-image. That's a, a brilliant conception. The, the first question that comes to mind is, um, we know the families uh, kept the letters that were sent home, so you might have the love letters of the men to their wives, but the soldiers had a hard time holding on to letters. They did. find both halves of the correspondence? Yes, often. More often than you would guess. Really? The the thing that I found remarkable is that, you know, a letter is such a delicate thing, especially when you're in a trench, Um, and yet the men, they were sacred objects, these letters. And I think part of it is that it connects them to the world uh, that they need to believe that they're fighting for. Um, So it's this thin, tenuous tread, a thread that goes all the way back home to some place that's more beautiful and worth fighting for than all of these sweaty, dirty, you know, whiskered men. Um, so it connects them to that world. And so they, they save them. They were sacred writings. They would actually send them back inside the same envelope uh, and say, you hold on to these, honey, and when the war is over, we'll have a record. Um, of our of our courtship and our experience, et cetera. So I did find the other half of the correspondence often, not a majority of the time, mm-hmm. but often. Well, what what did they project? What did the Southern soldiers see themselves as doing in these letters? I I think that you know, one thing that you can be sure of in any letter is if they're writing to mom, they're fighting for mom. If they're writing to their girlfriends, they're fighting for their girlfriends. I I, I think that that's. That's true in part. So you have to sort of decode these letters to get at, at the center. But I, I, I think the world of, of Chandra Manning's book, and I, and I signed it in class, uh, and I have no doubt in this world um, that they were fighting in part to ensure that, as one Mississippian wrote, the dusky sons of Ham don't lead our fair daughters to the altar. I have no doubt that they saw freedom for the slaves as a real threat to, to their fight to their white families and, and um, et cetera. So I have no doubt of that. At the same time, you also see uh, an amplification of sort of familial responsibility, a masculine uh, duty, a desire to sort of uh, make her safe. Um, and I think a lot of that was very real for them. It, of course, masked all of these other things, but I, I don't think we should punch through the mask immediately if we're trying to ask the question of why did they think they were doing it. So so in terms of, of love, they, they, they wish to protect the home folks. They wish to protect, protect a, a lifestyle, a society that they may yeah. idealize somewhat. Right. Uh, what but about you know, the ambition the, part? Well, the, the funny thing about love is, is that, you know, you're it's that the notion of that mirror again you're you're sort of falling in love with yourself in a way in some idealized version of the self so the love and ambition go together it's that you want to see this soldier but you don't want to be doing you don't want to be doing this fighting for yourself that's not worth doing that seems like a selfish act um you want to be doing it for a selfless reason so you need sort of a sponsor outside the self uh and so even the love of somebody else is uh selfish sort of affection too um and so in that ambition i i think part of it 
is and what I cover in the book is that there was a colossal sense of ambition in those days, and why shouldn't there have been? I mean, the country doubles in size with the Louisiana Purchase, doubles in size again with the Mexican Cession. Um, it seems like you could build an empire for the ages, something that hadn't been seen since Rome. And so I think, you know, these guys read poetry and they believed it. They went to class uh, that the college educated among them, and they saw, you know, the rise and fall of empires. That's what they were taught in their history class. This empire rose on this and fell for this other reason. Well, that's what they think they're doing. So that project is, is, is part of this as well. And, they want, and that's another selfless act. They want to see it that way, as civilization building, as bringing a great thing to the planet um, and doing it for her. And it, it strikes me, one thing that, that strikes me repeatedly in, in reading any political history of this era is how, how small the political population is in, in the sense of how many names just keep reappearing. Yes. Uh, certainly the example we talked about, the Lincolns and Hardens, uh, um, you know, how many times do Lincoln and James Shields keep interacting in their careers? <laughs> right. Um, it was a much, much smaller world. I've often thought that if you had a full wall, you could uh, tie virtually everyone together. I mean, it wouldn't even be, you know, six degrees of separation. It would be two. It, it would be. And yet, combined with this small world, you've got, as you, you put it, a huge canvas to, to work right. on with the country expanding. There's so many great things to do and so many fewer people to do them. That's right. So what you're saying about ambition really makes a lot of sense, that, that, that a smart, ambitious person would think, why shouldn't I be another Washington? Well, and that had been the project for time out of mind, and that's what these, these guys are taught. And increasing, I, I dealt mostly with the South, and an increasing number of these kids are sent to college where they're just stuffed to the gills uh, with poetry and civilization building, and they're not likely to become... Uh, planners, or if they are, they're also going to be lawyers and politicians, etc. Uh, and so I think they, they see themselves as empire builders. They, they, they are very romantic, overblown uh, people in a society that has reached uh, something past maturity. Does, does the war tear this away? Does this mirror, uh, does this ambition? That's, that's my claim, is that it sort of ends it. Uh, if pretty much once and for all you're not going to have these kinds of titanic ambitions that you had um you know with people like i mean this uh, aaron burr you know he wants to he really thinks that he could maybe cut off a swath of the louisiana purchase or a swath of mexico rule it as a can i mean it's all possible the realm of what was possible then i think we need to be in there that's why it's important to be in their minds uh to understand how they think and and uh but after the war that those dreams just just don't exist. The, well, they were crushed. I mean, they were absolutely crushed. Out, absolutely. The, the, the southern people, particularly, were never going to have this rather ludicrous uh, and overblown uh, sense of ambition again. It, it had been pared well down. They were happy to go home and for their greatest empire to be uh, and to rebuild that empire really on on their family. And and uh, I'm thinking from the northern perspective, Gerald Linderman argues that. You know, in embattled courage, that uh, the, the naive idea that, that courage carries the day that the individual matters disappears in the North as well. Right. After Cold Harbor, that's right. Doesn't matter how good you are, you know, that's right. You're, you're going to get killed either way. Right. Uh, so, so ambition has no further place in a world as random as the one they live in. At least not that kind of ambition. The ambition that you then see are, you know, more fraternities of men trying to build Atlanta. You know. Uh, after the war, that's that's the new South. Uh, well, 
Unfortunately, we have come to the end of our hour all too quickly, as we did two weeks ago in Chicago uh, on the virtual book signing at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, which listeners are invited to take a look at. Um, and go to that website and buy a copy of House of Abraham. Uh, learn about Lincoln and the Todds, the family divided by war, uh, by our, our guest today, Stephen Barry. Uh, I'm, Stephen, I'm so glad you could join us, and I hope you are feeling better soon. I'm sure I will be, and uh, I deeply appreciate it. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.